Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts, Ardina Osband, here with my friend and Chavruta and Gordon. Our daf today, Masachat Rosh Hashanah, daf Chavhei, page 25. Well, this is one of those dafs where Anne and I said we could read the entire daf. Um, and it starts off with a rather long Mishnah, which many of you should remember uh, if you've been learning with us from the beginning. Uh, and if you are not, I encourage you to go back to the episode of Brachot, uh, daf Chav Zion and Chav Chet. Uh, which has a very famous story about Rabbi Gamliel and Rabbi Yoshua. And here is another source uh, that gives us more details about an episode that happens between Rabbi Gamliel and Rabbi Yoshua. And I think part of, you know, before we read the mission itself, speaks to that, you know, there's so much cross-referencing with the text in the Gemara and this assumption of sort of not only the halakha, but even some of the stories that are presented that sort of, we know everything. Um, so, and every, you know, and that you, it's not that you're learning as you go, but somehow you have all of these things stored uh, within your head itself. So we'll start with the Mishnah. So they're talking about a specific incident that happened with testimony for the new moon. And there were two witnesses who came and they said, we saw the, we saw the, you know, the, this new moon in the morning in the East, the RV and uh, sorry, they saw the, the the moon leaving, the waning moon in the morning in the east. And on that same day, they saw the new moon in the evening in the west. Um, so Rabbi Yochanan ben Nuri said they have to be false witnesses. And why? Because it can't possibly be that you see the new moon so soon after you see the old moon, the last sighting of, of the of the waning moon. But when they got to Yavna, Rabban Gamliel, remember, this is Rabban Gamliel II, um, he allowed this testimony and he accepted them. Um, so what happens? There was another incident where there were two witnesses that came and they said, we see the new moon at its time, meaning on the night of the 30th of the previous month. But on the next night, meaning the start of the 30th, right, which, it, which you know, often is used to determine if you're going to have a full month, it was not seen. So in other words, it was seen one night and the next night when it obviously should have been seen again because it was seen the previous night, it was not seen. And still, Rabban Gamliel accepted this testimony and made the new moon on the 30th day. So Rosh Chodesh was on the, was on the 30th day. I'm a Rabbi Dosa ben Herkinis. So Rabbi Dosa ben Herkinis basically was upset by this. And he says, These have to be fault witnesses. So he gives a very nice analogy here where he says, how basically, how can witnesses testify the woman gave birth? And the next day, her belly is between her teeth. In other words, you can't say someone gave birth and they're obviously pregnant the same day. So the idea is, is that if the new moon was already seen at its at the time when you expected to see it, how could it not be seen a day later? Amrlo Rabbi Yoshua. So Rabbi Yoshua says, So Rabbi Yoshua basically says, I agree with you, Rabbi, Rabbi Joseph ben Herkinis. You, you're right. It, it doesn't make sense that this could be the new moon. And so Rabbi Gamliel then says to Rabbi Yoshua, right, you need to come before me, right? Right? And so this is very interesting. So Rebbe Gamliel, basically this was for the month of Tishrei, this incident that happened. It's interesting, the mission doesn't actually specify that it was the month of Tishrei, but because Rabbi Yoshua wanted to listen to Rabbi Dosa, 
the calculation of when Yom Kippur was, was a day later for Rabbi Yoshua. And so Rabbi Gamliel basically hears that Rabbi Yoshua is challenging him. And he says to Rabbi, to, um, Rabbi Yoshua, he says, you basically have to appear before me with your staff and your money on Yom Kippur on the day that you believe is Yom Kippur, which for Rabbi Gamliel would have been Yud Aleph Tishrei, but for Rabbi Yoshua is Yud Tishrei. So this is the specific reference to what happened in the Gemara in Brachot on, on Dav Chavzayin. Right. When they talk about the three incidences of sort of Rebel Gamliel, when he sort of, uh, let's say, started up with other people to maintain authority of the court. Um, so one of these, inc- particularly with Rabbi Yoshua, right, the, the, there the Machlokas is over whether or not Mariv is an obligation or if it's just something that you can do if you want to do. It's a reshoot. Right. This is one of the examples here that they give is this specific example with the Kiddush HaChodesh. So what happens? So obviously, Rabbi Yeshua is not so happy about this, that he is basically going to have to violate his day of Yom Kippur. So we don't know what happens with the Rabbi Yeshua, but the next piece of the narrative here is that Rabbi Akiva goes and he finds Rabbi Yeshua upset. Now, what's interesting is the Gemara later on is going to ask, who is Meitzar? Is it Rabbi Akiva who's Meitzar or Rabbi Yeshua? It concludes that it's Rabbi Yeshua. Amar Lo. And so, uh, so Rabbi Akiva basically says to Rabbi Yeshua, Yeshli Lamod Gamliel Asui. So Rabbi Akiva is basically going to do a teaching to Rabbi Yeshua to basically teach him that, you know, it's okay. You can listen to Rabbi Gamliel. And so he says that I'm going to teach you. I learned from a specific pasuk that, pasuk that everything that Rabbi Gamliel did is okay what he did. And what's the pasuk? So he quotes the pasuk from Vayikra chapter 23, verse 4, that says, Shnemar, these are the appointed seasons of, of God, sacred, they're, they're sacred, I, I guess the English would be con- convocations, which you shall proclaim, right, in their in their time. So basically it's saying whether they're proclaimed in the proper time or not in the proper time, right, you only have these festivals. In other words, Rabbi Akiva's reading of this is, is that Sometimes it's not important whether or not the moon was actually seen correctly. But once we as people declare it, it's declared. And it's sort of in a way like it doesn't really make a difference whether or not it was correct or not. We have the power to declare it. And sometimes we may declare it incorrectly. That doesn't make it any less correct. So, you know, it's interesting to see that Rabbi Akiva here sort of tries to comfort him with words of Torah. In the Gemara later on, which we're not going to have time uh, to, again, I said I could read this entire job. Right. Uh, you know, he goes on. They give sort of a little bit more of an explanation of some of that uh, discussion, which we'll we'll we'll, we'll talk about. Uh, I, I guess we'll talk about a little bit later. Then the Gemara goes on. Balo Rabbi So then Rabbi Yeshua goes to Rabbi Dosa ben Harkanis. Amar Lo, he says to him, If we come to debate this this ruling of of the baiting of Rabbi Gamliel. So he says, the problem is, is then we really can sort of open up that any baiting is allowed to be questioned from the time of Moshe Rabbeinu until now. So in other words, Rabbi Yeshua basically changes how distressed he is. He's correctly comforted by Rabbi Akiva and he goes to Rabbi Dosa and basically says, look, once we undermine the authority of the baiting, this is very bad. Now, again, this Mishnah is important because the way the story is presented in Brachot, you're missing this whole piece of the conversation. 
And that story is ultimately partially about the tension between Rabban Gamliel wanting to assert his authority, but yet him running up to a few interpersonal examples, particularly with Rabbi Yeshua, where finally the Talmidim of the Beit Din of the Beit Midrash say, enough is enough, you keep tormenting Rabbi Yeshua. But here we sort of see the flip of it, where Rabbi Yeshua basically understands the integrity or sort of wants to hold up the integrity of the court. And he, and he basically was back to Rabbi Dosa, who basically saying to him, like, you shouldn't have even questioned this from the beginning. And how does he prove this? He quotes another Pasuk from Shmot, chapter 24, verse 9. And so they ask a great question here, right? Which is, why are the names of the 70s of Canaan never actually said? Because the point is to say, once you are part of the Beitin, you are part of a Beitin. And you have the same status as being part of the Beitin of the court of Moshe. In other words, we're not going to, it's not important who the individuals are. The point is, is that you are important to the Beitin itself. And the Gemara goes into later on, where it basically tries to talk about, and maybe we'll read a little bit from this, the importance of accepting the leaders of one generation. That the Gemara acknowledges that there may be times where, you know, a generation sort of the leader is not as good or not as great as Moshe and Aaron. But once somebody is in charge, they are basically in charge. And that's basically the idea here. We can't get into the specifics of who of who is on the court. So Rabbi Yeshua basically, uh, so what does he so what does he do here? Uh, so he basically takes that, um, that he, so he takes his staff um, and, and his, uh, uh, and his money, right? And he basically goes to Yavna and sees Rabban Gamliel on the day that would have been Yom Kippur for him. Ahmed Rabban Gamliel in the Shakor Rosho, Rabban Gamliel greets him and kisses him on his head. Amarlo, Bo Bishalom, Rabbi Vitalmidi. Right. And he says, come in peace, my teacher and my student. Right. Rabbi Bechachma, you're my teacher in wisdom. Right. Because Rabbi Yeshua is really considered to be one of the greatest Tanayim. And you're my student because you did accept my words. Beautiful, beautiful story. But again, I encourage you, if you've not learned that passage in Brachot, to go back to hear how the story eventually evolves. So, uh, you know, the Gemara basically goes on to sort of discuss a little bit more, uh, uh, you know, about um, sort of different ways that the moon uh, can present itself. And it, it tells these sort of like other stories, um, uh, you know, the story of Rabbi Chia, um, who once sees the moon standing, you know, it says standing in the sky in the morning of the 29th, and he throws dirt at it. And he basically says, we need to sanctify you this evening. Um, and that Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi once tells Rabbi Chia to sort of specifically go out to try to find the new moon. Um, so it's sort of, you know, what we're moving into is, yes, there's the halachas presented in the Mishnah, but now through this Mishnah and some of the stories that the Gemara brings, it's sort of trying to show us practically how sometimes, uh, how this how this happened, um, how this happened sometime, and even tells a story that there was even a question about when, the moon was supposed to be and testimony came and Rabbi Gamliel basically rejects this testimony, right? Because he says it has to be exactly 29 and a half days, you know, plus, uh, plus a couple of hours and someone testified too early. And so Rabbi Gamliel not only refused to make a Shosh Chodesh, 
But the Gemara tells us, that on that day that that incident happened, where Rabbi Gamliel refused to accept the testimony, the mother of Ben Zaza died. He speeds up Rabbi Gamliel, Rabbi Gamliel gives a huge hespid for her. Not because she was worthy of this honor. So that everyone understood that it was not actually Rosh Chodesh, and therefore a hespid was allowed to be given. Um, so I just, this stop is so rich with so many nice stories about the Tanayim and a lot of these rich details. So I'm just going to conclude with one more thing. Um, again, I could read this whole section again with Rabbi Akiva and more of the comfort that he gives of uh, 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 Rabbi Yehoshua. It, it, it goes through it a little bit more where he, you know, he basically says to Rabbi Yehoshua that basically the court is allowed to make a mistake and it's still valid. Um, but the next part that they go through is expanding a little bit more in this interaction between Rabbi Yeshua and Rabbi uh, Dosa ben Herkinis about the idea that the court, we can't compare a court to another court. We can't compare the court to a previous generation. And the Gemara here basically discusses what I think is a very common human experience, which is that we tend to look at previous generations and we say that those people are, you know, that those people uh, must be you know, that those people must be, uh, they must be greater. So there's a whole Gemara here. I'm just going to read a few lines here. And now I'm on Amud Bet. Um, and so the Gemara before went through three people who are mentioned um, in Asuk in, uh, um, in uh, Shmuel chapter 12, verse 11, mentions uh, you and says that's Gidon and Beidan who is uh, Shimshon and Yiftach, Yiftach is still you. And, um, and, you know, sort of the idea is, is that these, these three leaders were nowhere near as good as Moshe and, and, and Shmuel were. And so the Gemara says as follows, Lomar, it comes to tell you, Baal Bidaro, Kamosha Bidaro, Yerubal, right, Gidon in his generation is like Moshe in his generation. Bidan Bidaro, Ka'arom Bidaro. Bidan, right, who Shimshon, his generation is equal generation. Yiftach Bidaro, Kishmul Bidaro. Yiftach in his generation is like his generation. Lilam Tashapilo Kalin, Benit Maparnish, Alatzibor, Harehu Kabir Shiva Evarim. So this basically comes to teach you that even the lay, even the, right, who maybe doesn't gravitas, who isn't such a good leader, it has to be. Over the community, right? But he's appointed as a leader over the community. He has to be treated like the great, the great. Basically, you have to tell that person you're not let's say, well, you're not as good as the previous generation. And then the goes on to say they quote a pasuk here from Devarim chapter 17, verse 9. So it's talking about in the future, you shall go to the behind him and the judge who shall be in those days. Right? So the Gemara asks an obvious question. Why does it specify in those days? How could a person go to a judge who those days? You have to go to the judge who's in your day. So it comes to teach us, right? That you need to go only to the judge in your day. The Omer, and furthermore, it says, and now it quotes a Pasuk in chapter 7 and Right, a person is not allowed to say, how is it that the former days were better than these? And so this whole passage here in the Gemara 
based on this mission is basically here to assert authority in each and every generation. A person is not allowed to go ahead and say, you know what, I'm not going to trust this leader. I'm not going to go to this leader because I know they're not as good as the previous generation. And so here, I think what we're seeing through this Mishnah and through the, the Gemara, there's, you know, there's a very big push to assert the authority of the Beitin and of Chazal in each and every generation. Um, and, you know, it's it's persuasive because I think, you know, it's always, you know, there's this tension. There's this tension of that Moshe was sort of the greatest of his generation. What does that mean about everybody in the future? And so this Mishnah, the story of Rabbi Gamliel and Rabbi Yeshua, and then this passage of Gemara really comes to say the authority of your generation is the authority of your generation. And one is really uh, always listen to them. And again, I'm just struck by the concept if we go sort of the order of the Gemara. That we know that on one hand the Gemara is chronological, but on the other hand, every at the same time that Rachos sort of gives us the second half where Rabbi Gamliel is actually ultimately removed as the leader of the Beitin because he sort of overexerted his authority. But here today on Rosh Hashanah, what we're here to learn is is that the, the importance of respecting the authority of your generation. Okay, wow, um, it's a big Amud. It's a big daf. Um, I want to, rather than comment on the specifics of everything you've gone through here, your Dana, because I just think there's just so much, I want to just note the comment that you've made about the interplay between here and the Daf and Brachot, because when we're talking about the structure of the Gemara, I feel like sometimes it becomes clear why a story might appear or halachic and sometimes it's just not clear. I think this is one where it is a bit more clear. And But as a whole, I would say that Masach Rosh Hashanah has been a little bit puzzling in terms of structure. I always related to it as, you know, oh, first we've got, you know, the um, first we've got the New Year's and then we've got the Witnesses and Kiddush HaChodesh and then we've got the Shofar. But now as we're paying more close attention, I'm noting that I'm about to begin the new parak, and we'll talk about that in a moment, that the Mishnah, the first Mishnah in the third chapter here, is basically still about the court and the witnesses and the new moon, which is what I would think would be in, you know, Parak Shani, which we're which you're Denny, which you've just completed. So I find it puzzling in part because the rest of the parak, or the theme and topic of chapter three, is really Shofar. And this Mishnah does not, does not, it's not like it's an obvious lead in. So of course you'll put it with that topic instead of back with the, with the rest of it. It, In some ways it really does seem to close the other. And, and I guess not too many people really talk, have the, have the breadth really of perspective to be able to talk about um, the, the structure of the Mishnah, uh, the structure of the, of the Talmud's construction. So it's not so easy for me to go find an explanation as to why this might have been, but I'm pointing it out because it struck me. And we've been commenting on this in Rosh Hashanah, Mesach Rosh Hashanah in particular. So without further ado, here's the Mishnah. Ra'uhu Beitin v'chol Yisrael. The Beitin and all of Israel saw the moon. Meaning they saw the moon. What does that mean? It saw the new moon on what turns out to be, right? They're going to see it on the 30th day, I think. But let's follow it through. They investigated the witnesses. They interrogated them. But they didn't have a chance to say that the day was sanctified until it was already dark. So therefore, that that month becomes a, an it has the extra day of the month. It's a becomes a full thirty day month because because they didn't have a chance to say 
before the 29th day was over. So now it's going to be the 30 day, a 30 day month. Ra'uhu Beitin Bilvad. What if only the Beitin saw it? Right? Meaning, because at the beginning is Ra'u Beitin Vachol Yisrael. We end up with both the court knowing that this is correct. They've seen the moon themselves, but also so did everybody else who comes to give testimony. So now the Mishnah continues. Ra'u Beitin Bilvad. What if only the court did it, did see it? So then what they should do is they should siphon off two people to be witnesses from the court and they can give the testimony before the court. And then they'll, they'll say, sanctified, right? What happens if three people saw the moon, the new moon, and they themselves are the court, they're part of the court. So the way they set, set it up is you say, they say, I have two of the three people should sit down and be the judges. No, I'm sorry. Two of them should stand and be the witnesses. And then um, they should sit down. They should have one individual who sits. Now, those are the three people who saw the moon. And then they should bring another two judges, just, just you know, other people who weren't part of this group of people who saw the moon. Um, and they can, the, the two plus the one will sit and be the judges. And then the two are the witnesses will testify before them. And the judges will say, Makudash, Makudash. And the reason they need to do that, and this is the mission's point, of course, is to say that one person is not enough, is not considered enough to declare the moon. You can't just have two people testifying before one judge. You need to actually have three judges. The fact that that, sec- that judge, the fact that that person who's sitting in the Beitin also happened to see the moon, and he isn't the one to give testimony, ends up being kind of near the, neither here nor there. Now the Gemara is going to ask a bunch of questions. Why does the Mishnah need to say to begin with if the court and all of Israel saw the new moon? Meaning I would think that just saying that the court saw the moon would be enough, right? Because if the court saw the moon, then what you could dispense, theoretically anyway, you could dispense with the whole process of the witnesses. It's strict. The Gemara says, no, no, it's necessary to have both. That you have to. So what happens? It says, you might think that since everybody, all the court and also all of Israel saw the new moon, so then maybe that's enough, right? Everybody saw it. What do you have to actually go through the, the process, the formal process of sanctifying the moon and sending out the word and everything if everybody knows because they've all seen it? And so the answer is, no, no, you actually do. You need both processes. You need both the witnesses coming and the baiting to testify. However you do the testimony, you don't get to, um, you don't get to negate or cancel out the process of sanctifying the new moon, nor the messengers. The Gemara asks again, or further, I guess. Okay, fine. You say that you need the witnesses to be able to make sure that this happens, but on the other hand, why do you have to go through the process of um, why do you have to go through the process of interrogating them, right? Because you know that that what they've said is true because you were there, you, the court, were there yourselves to see it. So maybe it really should have said alternatively, alternatively that the witnesses were interrogated, not that everybody was necessarily there. All of it, the rest of it still holds, meaning the point is whether the witnesses were interrogated or they just simply didn't have time, 
they didn't have time to do either or they didn't need to do either. The bottom line is we're talking about a case where the statement or the utterance of Mikudash Mikudash does not take place before it's truly dark. Vekevan, the Gemara goes on, another difficulty, Vekevan, Tana Ad so the moment you say that the court didn't get to say Mukudash before it became dark, well, then that's a full 30-day month. Once you know that that's going to happen, why do, you, why do you need to do any investigation of the witnesses at all? Meaning you already know that you're going to have a 30-day month. So the Gemara answers, we say you have to investigate your witnesses because the whole process of in, interrogating the witnesses is fundamentally the beginning of the of din. This is the part of what it means to be in the court, the judicial process. And then the statement of, of sanctification fundamentally closes that same judicial process. So if you want to close it off at night, meaning you want it to end once it's already dark, then what about the fact it's like Dine Mamonot, it's like property law, right? That's or um that's Dine Mamonot. Because we have a mission elsewhere, a bright elsewhere that says that um you can judge a case that's primarily a monetary issue, you judge in the day, and you can finish off the judgment of it in the night. So then I might think that you could also do that here, that the issue is you could fa- finish off the sanctification process into the night. And the answer is no, you cannot. That Mekudash Mekudash statement must take place before nightfall. And another difficulty, because it does seem to be a whole lot raised right on this very small piece of Mishnah. So then say also, right, that the same sanctification of the month, shouldn't that also be, then be treated like other property cases? Right, the state, the pasuk in Tehillim, Psalms chapter eighty-one says, "This is a statute for Israel, a judgment for the God of Jacob." So then, the question is, when does this happen? When does it happen that the very sanctification of the new moon is considered a statute? And the way the Gemara answers, that happens, namely, specifically, it kicks in to be uh, a statute at the end of the judicial process of establishing the new moon, of sanctifying the new moon. And the same way that we have statements that call the, the judgment as, I'm sorry, that we, that we can, that the Torah calls um such a decision, right? Mishpat, uh, so you would think that this also could happen during the day, because those others happen during the day, but here we say no, you, you can't, right? Meaning, the pro- I'm sorry, that the process itself must be finished in the day, you cannot carry it into the night, because mishpat is used, this term mishpat is used specifically to refer to daytime things. Okay, um, the Gemara here goes on, and it talks about witnesses, you know, again, if two witnesses come, what happens if they saw the moon at the, in the night, and it's too late, Right and um and the question is how how far do they probe that kind of situation right what happens if you only have one witness what happens and then or you have three but they're not all reliable and but one is reliable how is that going to work what do you do when you only have one witness you know and so on the Gemara here is I would say tying up some of the loose ends that we've seen on we've seen that same kind of thing happen in previous topics when just before there's going to be a shift into a new topic, which honestly I still think usually is at the beginning or the end of a 
you know, the end, the end of a Mishnah, I'm sorry, the end of a parak as a new parak that's going to begin with a new topic. In this particular case, it seems to be, um, you know, all at the end of all of the, all on, on this one Mishnah, which theoretically still should be in parak bet. I just want to add one, one last thing. There's a very famous discussion here at the, towards the end of the very end of our daf onto the beginning of the next daf, which we'll talk about now because tomorrow we're going to talk about shofar. This question of whether a witness can be a judge. And there's a whole discussion here about exactly this question, right? Because generally speaking, we say an aid, a witness cannot be, um, that to be an aid, to be a witness, you have to be also qualified to be a judge. So then this suggests so then, so then, if that's the case, meaning if you have a witness who can, who is eligible to be a judge, so let the witness become the judge. Meaning, if you're running out of people to to establish the the new moon, this is the part that I've skipped in the text inside. So then, we're going to say that that would suggest that this mission would not be according to Rabbi Kiva, because Rabbi Kiva says, if a, if the court itself saw a murder, then they'll divide up the court, meaning here we're talking about a court of 27 or, or the full court, right? We're not just talking about three, where you could set up some some of the people to be witnesses and some of them to be judges. That is Rabbi Tarfon's opinion. Rabbi Akiva says specifically in that case, you make all of those people who saw the murder witnesses and find other people to be the Dayanim because you don't have a witness in the case take the role of a judge in the same case. Now, in that case, the Gemara ends up rejecting it, right? But the point here is that this this question of to what extent can these roles be overlapping, meaning the witness and the judge role, um, it's an interesting question. It pops up in a number of different cases, and it's even part of the discussion, which we've mentioned here and there, about you know the question of women becoming Diana, women becoming judges, or for that matter, women becoming witnesses, the fact that they can't be one has impact on the claim that they can't be the other, except for in those cases where they can. Um, so I, I it's it's still puzzling to me this location of the this particular discussion, but um, but I think that it does also round off the topic of bringing witnesses to the court to be judged because. It, it brings in all of these like very complicated um, um, configurations of what the court itself might be. Yeah, I think these are all good points about this Mishnah. Again, it does seem like a very misplaced Mishnah, but I do think part of it is also this Mishnah is trying to assert the authority of the Beit Din uh, in a different way. Before it's saying that their judgment is always sort of in every generation, here it's trying to say that you have to have the baiting in order to enact certain things. Even if it's like obvious to everybody that it's the new moon, it's the process of having the baiting say it that's actually important. Well, that's our DAP today. Rank us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to our Benit Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about this DAP on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn. <laughs>